Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Before we begin this time, I'd just like to bring a few small things to your attention. Firstly, this episode is number 25, and that means that we have now officially passed our one-year mark, and this is the first episode of Year 2. The podcast has really been phenomenal in that first year, with over a quarter of a million people downloading episodes since we started, and many more listening online. When you start a new, relatively niche project such as this, you never really know where it's going to go. But the podcast has gone much further in one year than I could have possibly hoped. This is down to you, our wonderful audience, and your engagement with the podcast. We would not be here without you, and I am eternally grateful. Some people run podcasts purely as a business venture. But for most, including the Folklore Podcast, the most important thing is being part of a global community of like-minded people who can support each other, widen networks, and hopefully grow audiences in this fantastic medium. To that end, we will be, from time to time, connecting with other shows, or helping to support those who get in touch with us where we think we can help them, and their shows will be of interest to you. This month, I responded to a call from the hosts of the Brohio podcast, who were looking to cross-promote. The Brohio podcast is an informal chat-based show, which does, to warn you, contain some adult language due to its style, but the themes covered by the hosts will be of interest to some of our audience. Shows have covered Aliens at Wright-Patterson, Hauntings in Athens, Black-Eyed Children, and, like our very first episode, Slenderman. The Brohio podcast is available on most podcast platforms, so do subscribe and try out an episode or two to see if it's your thing. As we have reached the end of our first year, the Folklore podcast will take a summer break for the month of August. This will allow time to prepare some shows and interviews for the coming months, catch up with some important show admin, and, frankly, have a bit of a rest. Many hours of research, preparation and answering communication go into this podcast, and we all need a little breather sometimes. We'll be back again on September the 1st, as usual. While we're away, there are many ways you can still engage with us through the discussion group on Facebook, or by emailing us and giving us suggestions for future shows. We love to hear from you. Also, while we're away, why not take the time to introduce just one friend to the show? Imagine how much we could have grown by the time the next show airs. Finally, we are not a business, but we do offer you the chance to invest just a little in the show to help to cover our costs and create more output. This is through our Patreon page, for which there are more details in the end credits of every show. Our patrons are vital. The show has grown dramatically this year, and without them we could not keep going. In return, they get extra content and great rewards, and our Patreon goals lead to even bigger things. The current goal will allow us to create over the next 12 months, a full-length, professionally filmed and presented DVD documentary. And we are only a few dollars a month away from this becoming a reality. I can now reveal that the subject of this documentary will draw on my book and extensive research into ghostly black dog apparitions to present a new and highly detailed examination into the folkloric origins of the Hound of the Baskervilles, the most classic Sherlock Holmes story. The documentary will look at various aspects of the lore of dog ghosts, as well as interviewing experts in various fields of both folklore and literature, and visiting many of the key sites in the intriguing story of the creation of the Hound. All patrons, at any level, will receive a free version of this documentary, so please do consider supporting the show, even at the $1 a month pledge level and this documentary could begin to become a reality. And, if you're listening to this episode much later, there will be another Patreon goal once this one is achieved, which will lead to another big development in the future of the Folklore Podcast. That's enough news for now. 
on to this episode, which looks at the development of an acclaimed piece of theatre, drawing on many aspects of traditional law and social history to tell an important story. Early Modern England a time when life in a village community was tough for most. But even tougher if you were down on your luck, had no money, were looked upon with suspicion, and had neighbours who believed that their children were being bewitched. The play in question is called Witch. And today, its creator will explain more about this project. Welcome to the Folklore Podcast. Folklore. The beliefs, traditions and culture of the people. Passed on in the most part through the spoken word, folklore expresses our values, our shared ideas with others. It is both how we were and how we are. Without a record, our customs and traditions may become lost to us in the present, but under the surface, we still draw on them. We still know. It's time to recall our forgotten history, and to record the new. This is the Folklore Podcast. My guest on this episode of the Folklore Podcast is Tracy Norman. Tracy is an actress, she's a historian, and she's a writer, and she also has the dubious privilege of being married to me. Tracy, your play Witch uh, looks at a destitute healer in a village community in the early modern period, Uh, a lady who is very much down on her luck. Uh, She is accused of being a witch by a neighbour of hers because of certain things that have happened to him and have happened to his family. Um, Where did all this come from? How did this story come about? Um, Well, I graduated from the OU in 2015 with a history degree. And um, rather than just frame the certificate and put it on the wall, I actually wanted to do something practical with it uh, and put the knowledge I had learned and the skills that I had learned particularly to good use. I've always been interested in social history and while I was trying to think of a good way of using my newfound skills, I wanted to try to capture some kind of obscure part of history. Um, One of the things I really like is old photographs particularly the ones that have a little bit of context with them and which show details of how people used to live. I've always been absolutely fascinated by that. So I wanted to try and find something obscure which I could use to bring more into sort of public awareness and share that person's story. I was um, a member of a newly created production company, Circle of Spears Productions, and I thought maybe I could write something that Circle of Spears could do as perhaps a summer season. So I was kind of kicking around with a few ideas of areas of history which might produce something really good and meaty for me to work with. And I came up with the idea of perhaps dramatising a witch trial because there would be all sorts of instances of people's actual spoken words and details of what had happened to people, details of what was given in evidence in court. And I thought that might be quite an interesting thing to do. So I went to the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic in Boscastle, Cornwall, and I said, I would like to do this. Have you got any uh, witch trial transcripts I could have a look at? And they said, yes, have this. This is the, uh, the most complete written record of an English witch trial. And I went, oh, how exciting. Thank you very much. And I had a look at it and I'd never heard of it. This is the most complete written record of an English witch trial, and it runs to seven handwritten pages and six typewritten ones. That's it. 
all we have is the evidence of four people given against a lady from 1687 whose name was Denis Gimmerton or Grimmerton. It's spelled both ways. Um, she was from Lyme Regis. She was a housewife. And she was accused of bewitching a girl called Elizabeth Tillman and a young lad called Nathaniel Scorch. So I read Denis Gimmerton's case and I thought, yes, this is perfect, but it won't work in the way that I wanted it to originally. How can I get all this amazing stuff from this evidence into the form of a play? So I started researching a little bit wider. Um, I drew in a lot of other people's real life experiences and used the experiences of about six or seven different people um, to create my central character, Marjorie. Marjorie is a destitute healer and midwife. She has lost her husband. Uh, she has lost her house. Basically, any form of bad luck which could afflict a person has afflicted Marjorie. So right from the outset, she is other, she is different. She has all this knowledge that most people don't have, which has probably been passed down from mother to daughter through generations of her family. So Marjorie has been arrested. She has been taken to prison. And when the play starts, she and her accuser, a local man named Thomas Latimer, have been brought before the local magistrate, Sir William Tyrrell, in order that he can hear both sides of the argument and then decide how the case should proceed. This passing down of knowledge from mother to daughter or from father to son is, of course, a really important part of uh, the dissemination of folklore. Uh, we have the internet and we have things these days that allow us to do this a lot more easily but of course in the past this was the way that knowledge was transmitted um, but in this production it's not just those areas of knowledge which you look at is it it's the practical parts of the story as well um, so you you'd worked very closely with the museum of witchcraft and magic um, and of course there are people there who are very knowledgeable about these areas and we've looked at other aspects of this on the podcast before we've looked at traditional witchcraft for example now this is a play that's got a lot of traditional witchcraft elements in it yet is not about witchcraft is that fair to say that is entirely accurate yeah I, I didn't want it to be about witchcraft per se I wanted to use witchcraft as the vehicle to examine what I was really interested in, which was the social history and the interactions and um, relationships within a community which gave rise to accusations of witchcraft. Um, so I think dark magic is mentioned in the play twice, fairly close to the beginning, and then that's it, it's not mentioned again. So I'm not a witch. As you said, I'm an actress, I'm a writer, I'm a historian. Um, so I wasn't going to focus on something of which I have little knowledge. I wanted instead to focus on um, the social history side of it, which I have a great deal more knowledge of. Um, and Marjorie's story enabled me to bring in an awful lot of detail about all the different things which affected both communities and individuals within those communities. And these aspects of social history, of course, are, are very much a part of folklore. Folklore is a subset of history very much in the social sphere if you like um, and as you say you're not looking at witchcraft as a theme but you are looking at some of the practical pieces of law for want of a better term and incorporating those into the story to show different things um, can you give us an example perhaps of, of some of the practices that Marjorie as a healer or as a an important member of the community. She would have been a midwife, she would have been a nurse to people, perhaps. Yet she's still using techniques which now in the modern age, although still practiced, are looked on as very much being part of our past or part of our law. How have you woven those into the story? One of the first things we did when the script was finished um, was we took it down to Boscastle to uh, do a private performance, a test performance for um, an invited audience of people from the museum and some other invited guests with a specific interest in witchcraft. And I'd just like to say at this point that right from the very beginning when I first went to the museum and said, 
I've had this slightly random idea, can you help me? They were unbelievably helpful, supportive. They have supported the project right from the beginning. They have offered advice. Any time I wanted to go down and research anything, the library is always open to me. And it's just been so brilliant to have that backing. Obviously, they took a bit of a gamble, having never had live theatre in the library before. But they said, yes, we would love you to come and do it. So, you know, they gave unfailing support right from the outset with what was at that stage an unknown entity. And I can't thank them enough for that because it really meant everything to me. And it helped the project to become what it has become today. Without them, there would be no witch. So one of the things that came out of that performance was um, some advice from Joyce Froome from the museum. Um, who suggested putting in some charms. So she gave me a whole list of things that I could have used. So I selected some of those because what I wanted, I didn't want Marjorie's innocence or guilt to be clearly defined. So there is no answer to the question of whether or not Marjorie is innocent or guilty because that's how the show is designed. One of the things that I wanted to do with Marjorie was lull the audience kind of into a false sense of security and then turn things on its head. And one of the things that I've done is include some of the charms that Joyce suggested. So these are very, very innocent things which people would have carried around with them. So there is some badger's fur and that was something that was used in part of a charm for healing. Um, there are also things which, depending on your viewpoint, aren't necessarily quite so innocent, but that was introducing the grey areas and making people wonder is Marjorie innocent? Is she actually guilty? Has she done something? So Marjorie has in her purse, um, alongside her badger fur, some bay leaves and some cloves, uh, she has a small piece of scripture. Now, she didn't tear this from a Bible herself. She traded for it. She traded some poultices. But the reaction of the, uh, the magistrate towards this is quite extreme. And this leads on to one of the most interesting parts about early witchcraft and indeed traditional practice as it is still carried out today. Because going through um, details of witch trials throughout history, you find how many of the people who were accused were actually devout Christians and how often looking into specifics of traditional practice, how often psalms were used and prayers were used. So there was a complete crossover between traditional practice and what was deemed magic um, right from very early times. The main thing that I wanted to do was to bring in an awful lot of really everyday mundane things which could then be turned on their head. So all of this focuses on the mundane day-to-day -day life of a small community, probably rural, and the way that those mundane, quite innocent things can be turned on their head. For example, Marjorie is a midwife. She is a healer. She's a herbalist. However, in order to do good with a medicine, you also need to know when to stop and when it becomes harmful. So again, there is another gray area there for Marjorie because yes, she has all this knowledge. She chooses to use it for good. However, should you cross her, she also has the power in her knowledge to turn that on its head and to use it for ill. And also, of course, in those times as well. And we've looked at this in various aspects on other episodes of the podcast such as the um, episodes on old hag phenomena you have things happening which were not understood at the time but are now understood and have these kind of supernatural things ascribed to them and I know that comes up doesn't it in a lot of witch trials that these things happen to people that they didn't understand at the time. So they go, oh, it's because I've been bewitched or it's because some demon has visited me in the night and so on. That is a very good point. We do actually discuss that in the play because one of the characters um, discusses the fact that a doctor was called to one of the people believed to be bewitched. And one of the things which is particularly interesting about doctors of the time is that... Yes, they were very learned men, but their, their knowledge was necessarily limited because of the advancement of science at that stage. So if there was 
something going on with a person which they couldn't immediately identify and which didn't seem to have any obvious cause, it was not unheard of for doctors to routinely pronounce somebody as being bewitched because they had no other explanation. And that is what happens to one of the patients um, in Marjorie's story. Now this term trial has come up many times in this discussion so far, talking about witchcraft trials. And of course there are other pieces of drama that look at witchcraft trials, and I'm thinking specifically, I suppose, of The Crucible, for example, Arthur Miller looking at the Salem witch trials. Yours is a little bit different, isn't it? Because yours is not looking at that aspect. No, it's not. It's um, One of the taglines we use for the show is, it's not a trial, but a woman's life is still on the line. I did play slightly fast and loose with the Elizabethan legal system when I was writing which, because what I didn't want to do was produce another crucible. It's already been done far better than I could ever do it, and I wanted to do something different. So my three characters um, are not in a courtroom scenario where there are specific ways of speaking and addressing people, where there are specific procedures which must be followed. Um, courts of the day were actually quite um, chaotic particularly if you had somewhere like Westminster, where you had the King's Bench and Court of Common Pleas and things all sitting in the same room, just partitioned off. And quite often, um, as far as I can tell from what I've read, the judge and the accused sometimes couldn't hear each other over the noise which was coming from other uh, court hearings going on around them. So sometimes the conditions in which these trials took place was quite deplorable. And that didn't feed into what I wanted to do. I wanted my characters to be in a much more informal setting where they all had a chance to put forward their own side of the story. So I have chosen to have Marjorie being held prisoner in a cell underneath the magistrate's house. She's brought up from her cell into his library where he's going through his papers for the day. He's interested in this particular case because he's never dealt with anything like this before. So he has them called into his library to discuss it with them to see whether or not it's going to be another routine. Yes, she can go off for trial, take her to the assize, or if um, if it's just a squabble between neighbours, because looking at the evidence that's been presented and listening to the two of them talking, that's not clear. Let's have a listen then, at this point, to an extract from the audio version of this production, which kind of sums up all those things that you've just been saying about um, the environment that these people are discussing this in about the scenarios that are happening. Here's a little extract. What made Mistress Latimer think that Mistress Scroope was a witch? I'm sure I don't know, sir. She had a feeling for quite some time that Marjorie Scroope might be a witch, but she never said why. That's how I knew who was responsible for Nathaniel's illness. Ah, yes, Nathaniel. Tell me about him. Very well, sir. Nathaniel is ten. A good boy. He's learning my trade, and was doing well for himself before this started. I sent him to John Godslands, the vintner, with a delivery of two barrels that he'd ordered. While he was there, Marjorie Scroop passed by and stopped to talk to him and to Godsland. Nathaniel had a toothache, which the cold weather was making worse so she offered him a little parcel of herbs to put on it. He took them and placed them in his mouth as she told him to. What did you give the boy, Mistress Scroop? Just cloves with a little peppermint and ginger. My poultices are very effective. I made sure the boy put it on properly and then went about my business. He had no way of paying me at that time, so I knew that I would have to speak to his father about it. Indeed. Well, that sounds like the usual way of dealing with a toothache. I've certainly used cloves myself in the past. I've found them very effective. Depends what effect you're trying to get. Stop muttering, Latimer. Continue with your story, please. Well, Marjorie Scroop left Nathaniel and Godsland to finish their business. And once they were done, Nathaniel returned to my workshop. He started feeling ill, and that night he had a fit. I see. A reaction to an infection in his tooth, perhaps. No, sir, it was the herbs that woman gave him. How can you be so sure? 
He was doing all right up until then, sir. It was only after he'd seen her. Had Nathaniel suffered from toothache before? A few times, sir, yes. And what did you give him for the pain back then? You brought him to me and asked me to help him, did you not? Is this true, Master Latimer? Yes. What did you give the boy on that occasion, Mistress Scroop? Exactly the same as I have always given everyone for the toothache, sir. Cloves, peppermint and ginger. Why are you so certain that the herbs were responsible for Nathaniel's ague, Latimer, and not the toothache itself? Because of all that had gone before, sir, with Alice. Nathaniel was too ill to work the next day, so I had to ask my neighbour's wife, Mistress Oakford, to keep an eye on him. He had another fit that day, and as it was easing off, he saw an apparition of Marjorie Scroop sitting on the end of his bed. Mistress Oakford was very frightened, as well she might be. She struck out at the place where the apparition was, but had to stop, because every time she raised her hand to it, Nathaniel would scream in agony and beg her to stop, because it was causing him pain. After that, he said the apparition rose up and passed through the window shutters, which were closed, and vanished. When exactly was this? Not long after Liz died, sir. Maybe a month or two afterwards. I see. Uh, please, continue. I am most interested. There will be a few things I wish to return to and discuss with Mistress Scroop. Yes, sir. Well, Nathaniel carried on having fits, but they caused him a lot of pain, which didn't seem to be the case with Alice. At least, not as much. During one fit, he was screaming in agony and clutching his stomach. Suddenly, he started choking and then coughed up a pin. A pin? Yes, sir, a brass pin. And not just that one time, either. This went on and on. One time, the poor lad even brought up a dirty great iron nail. All he could say afterwards was, She done it. She's to blame. Well, that could refer to anyone, Master Latimer. Did he specifically name Mistress Scroop? Not on that occasion, sir, no. But he had done before. There was a woman in another parish who hid pins in her stomacher and pretended to have fit so she could accuse someone of witchcraft. Is that so, Mistress Scroop? Yes, sir. So I heard. When she pretended to have a fit, she would work the pins up into her mouth so it appeared she was spitting them out. Well, this is extraordinary. Why would she do such a thing? I don't wish to speak out of turn, sir, as I'm only repeating what I've heard in the tavern, but I believe she had fallen foul of a beggar woman somehow and was trying to have the woman accused of witchcraft before she could put the beggar's curse on her. The beggar's curse? Yes, sir. Have you never heard of it? Indeed not. In these parts, sir, the beggar's curse is believed to be even more powerful than God's curses. Well, the church's ultimate sanction is excommunication. How can the curse of a beggar be worse than that? Because they know in their art that they deserve to be cursed. Times have changed, sir. Before the new religion, people gave dolls willingly. But now they turn beggars away. Because even though the priests still preach charity... The local authorities forbid the giving of alms at the door. No one knows exactly what they should do with the poor these days. Do they risk their body by breaking the law? Or do they risk their immortal soul by neglecting to do their Christian duty? Most people choose to save their body and wrestle with their conscience at their leisure. You're a fine one to speak of Christian duty. How dare you, you ungrateful churl! You know damn well that I have helped your family many times in the past. How often did Liz come to me when one of your babes couldn't sleep? Oh, Marjorie, she'd say, poor Alice is so restless at night. Is there anything you can give me to calm her so she sleeps? And I helped her. I helped her when she came to me with her illness first off. I gave her poultices to ease the pain, many times. I didn't like to see her suffering with no one to turn to. She had me. Don't you dare speak about my wife. She had you? You who spends most of his time in the tavern? Ha! Huh. 
I could tell you a thing or two about your marriage and your wife. She didn't have you. You didn't care about her. What do you know about my marriage and my wife? Nothing. Shut your filthy mouth, woman. How dare you talk about my wife? Ah! Come here. Ah, what are you doing? Get off! Ah, no! Oh, what in the name ah! of God are you doing, man? If I can scratch her and draw her blood, I will rid my family of her curse. What are you talking about? I have to stop her, sir. I have to stop her. Calm down, Latimer. This is ridiculous. I am not seeing anything here which leads me to suspect that Mistress Scroop is a witch. So whilst you are in my house, you will refrain from such outbursts, or I will have you removed and dismiss your accusation. Is that quite clear? Yes, Sir William. We are not in France. We do not torture our suspects, Latimer. Nor do we indulge in baseless superstition. Scratching Mistress Scroop will not help you. How so, sir? That is one tradition I have heard of in relation to witches, Latimer. Even if it were true, and drawing Mistress Scroop's blood would indeed lift the curse, as you call it, my understanding is that it has to be the affected person who carries out the act. In this case, unless you yourself are having fits, the affected person is your son, Nathaniel. Am I not correct? Give me the pin. Before I hear from Mistress Scroop, Master Latimer, I need to know whether you have any evidence, hard evidence, that she is a witch. Because I will tell you quite frankly that this entire episode appears to me to be little more than a squabble between neighbours. Unless you can convince me otherwise, I am inclined to dismiss your accusation as unfounded and malicious. After her husband died, she told people she was a witch. Is this true, Mistress Scroop? So what's happened there? What's happened in this extract? Well, Thomas Latimer, the local Cooper who has brought the accusation against Marjorie, um, is obviously struggling with his emotions um, at being forced to confront her and finally getting his chance to have his day in court, if you like. Um, so he has decided to take matters into his own hands. He has produced a pin from his pocket and is attacking Marjorie, trying to scratch her, to break her skin, to make her bleed. It was believed, as he says, that drawing, um, drawing a witch's blood would lift a curse that she had placed on families. And this is one of the interesting things about um, beliefs in such things, because one, one family I read about when I was doing my research, I was actually still um, holding masses and fulfilling the terms of lifting a curse about three or four hundred years after it had been laid on their family. So it had become kind of like a family tradition and ritual, if you like, even though three to four hundred years later, the view of such things would have changed radically. And yet that particular family had had it drilled into them over the generations that you must do this because our family has been cursed. Well, we find this everywhere in folklore. Lots of rituals and traditions come from that, not just within families as well, of course. You know, we have things in the landscape. We have things like, you know, uh, odd stones, glacial erratics, that because they are out of context, somehow must have some kind of um, devil story attached to them. So we have these annual traditions or rituals where stones must be turned to prevent the devil from attacking a village or something like that. So these, yeah, this, this idea of... Um, of uh, information or stories or traditions transcending generations crops up, doesn't it, time and time again. Mm. Now, these experiences that you're talking about that we heard some examples of in this extract, these are all actual experiences, aren't they? These aren't just plucked out of the depths of your imagination. These go back to your research. And I know that's a very, very important thing, isn't it, that drives you in what you're doing with this? It really is. That's kind of the linchpin of the whole thing. Um, when I was given the Dina Skimmerton papers by the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic, what I really wanted to do was take the experiences of those people and 
bring them more into public knowledge. I'd never heard of this case, and it's the most complete written record of an English witch trial. So I started researching into Dina Skimmerton to try and find out more about her, and specifically to find out what happened to her, because the result is not known. So I started googling her. She is annoyingly absent from pretty much everything and it's got to the stage now where as my research has um, expanded I think about half of the first page of Google results is me which is really annoying when I'm trying to find new stuff about her Um, but it's just not there to be found. So what I've done is Thomas Latimer's family, his wife Liz and his children Nathaniel and Alice, they are based on the Scorch family who were the main complainants in the case of Dina Skimmerton. Nathaniel Scorch was a young lad about 18 or 19 years of age who was suffering from fits and believed that Dina Skimmerton was responsible for them. Those experiences have been translated onto Nathaniel and Alice Latimer the two children of Thomas Latimer, who both suffer from fits and believe that Marjorie is to blame. Now, whether or not they genuinely believe Marjorie is to blame or whether there is something that their mother is um, kind of putting in their head about who is to blame, that is something that remains to be seen. But everything that happens in which has actually happened to somebody in real life in the early modern era. Dina Skimmerton whether she was responsible for hurting Elizabeth Tillman and Nathaniel Scorch or not, had to sit in court in the Dorchester Assize and listen to all of this evidence being given against her. So whether it's true or not is really immaterial for me. Somebody had to sit there and listen to all of this being said about her. Now, I know nothing about Dina Skimmerton as a person. I cannot find anything out about her at all so far. So all I have is four people's very one-sided view of her. So what I wanted to do is try to draw on other people's experiences to create Marjorie, who is my Dina's representative, if you like. So, for example, one of the things that Marjorie talks about following the attack on her by Latimer with the pin is a woman who was found out for uh, faking fits and hiding pins in her dress, which she would then manipulate into her mouth so it looked like she was spitting them out. It sounds fantastical. That came out of my research. That woman, I I believe, was um, she was featured in a pamphlet um, which highlighted the fact that she was faking fits in order to have somebody falsely accused of witchcraft. So there are also a a number of other things um, which I, I would have liked to have got into the play, but they weren't relevant and they would have added a certain levity to it, which wasn't at all appropriate. My favorite, um, potential witch, shall we say, was a lady who um, went around her parish who was obviously a bit of a troublemaker and um, liked to have a bit of a moan. So you can see why she was probably not massively popular. One of the complaints, and there were a list of a lot of complaints that I found from this one lady, um, it also featured the complaint that um, on Dole Day she had been given inferior bread. But yes, everything in which has been drawn directly from my research And the reason for that is because these are people's actual experiences and they show us where we came from. And I think it's very important that we don't forget that. Absolutely. And you're doing a really, really vital thing, aren't you? Because what you're doing is you're giving a voice to people who never had the chance to have that voice in their own time. So... You're using these voices in a really good and positive and constructive way because not only are you doing what happens all the time in folklore and that's taking these stories and retelling them and and passing information on through the generations just in a different way, although of course theatrically is a very, very common way for folklore stories to be told, But you're using these voices to remember these people and to inform future generations about themes which are no different now than they were back then. I think that's fair to say. That is a really good point. Um, One of the things that we do is we hold a QA and a session after each of our performances. And I always tell people that everything they have just seen actually happened to real people in the early modern era 
So everything that they've seen in the play has actually happened to somebody. And there was always a lovely little kind of moment of silence and then a little ripple of, ooh, through the audience when they realise that it's not just something that I've plucked out of my imagination. This is something that I've taken from historical documents, from records. Um, these are all real people's experiences. So for me, it's very, very important that we do this in a respectful way. And this this is one of the really important things to my mind about folklore. There's a lot of discussion and a lot of argument in certain areas of academia, for example, about the validity of folklore as a subject area. You can't study it in many universities, in the United Kingdom especially. You're more fortunate perhaps overseas in some areas. Um, people who do latch on to history courses in university, anthropology courses, archaeology courses that want to look at this, these aspects of folklore find it very, very difficult to get attached. They get passed from pillar to post within universities because somehow this is not valid as a subject area. But actually it's crucial, isn't it? It's crucial for us to understand our past and for us to use our past to inform our future and this i think this is a debate that i will constantly have with people about as actually there's far more to folklore than academic analysis and academic study folklore is about looking at our past through the eyes and the ears and the experiences of the people who lived it and looking at how that informs how we live our present, which is exactly, I think, what you're doing, isn't it? Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. Um, and it also shows how um, how people interpreted what they saw around them, which is why witch is not about witchcraft. It's all about the mundane, everyday things and how even the simplest, most innocent of actions or words or expressions could suddenly... If somebody misinterpreted that look or action or expression, could have you accused of being a witch and could potentially end your life if you were found guilty. All stories evolve, don't they? Um, they start off as being a simple story with a simple intention, perhaps. And they evolve and they grow through the telling and the retelling. And that's kind of what's happened with this project as well isn't it this started off with you wanting to tell somebody's story as a piece of theatre to entertain people and to perhaps make people think a little bit and give them some insight into how things used to be it's kind of gone on from there now hasn't it uh just a bit yes tell us what's <laughs> happened since you wrote the play well i as I said before, I had the idea to write it. I hoped that it might do Circle of Spears productions for a summer season. The Museum of Witchcraft and Magic very kindly um, offered to host us. So our summer season took place in their library, which was the first live theatre, as far as I know, that they'd ever had there, um, which was absolutely amazing. I mean, where, where better to do a play about which, not about witchcraft, <laughs> <laughs> but a library full of books about the craft and associated subjects. So from there, um, I think it was our second performance, somebody said to me, um, do you use this for theatre and education? And I kind of did my rabbit in headlights look and went, this is our second performance. So I had a chat with the chap. He was um, head of English from an academy in Cornwall. And he booked us to take our show down to his uh, year eight, nine English students, which was an experience in itself. So we have been used for um, theatre and education for university students also. Um, and since then, we have also um, had a number of extremely well attended and sold out performances. We've performed at a couple of theatre festivals, which went down really well. Um, they were very successful for us. And um, in fact, coming up later this month, we are going up to Bristol to be part of the Creative Histories Conference, which Bristol University is running um, the 19th to the 21st of July. It's being held at Bristol Zoo. If you Google Creative Histories, you'll find a link to the website on, the, on there. Um, 
which is actually on the 21st of July, one o'clock till three o'clock. So if you're interested in history and how creative arts can be used to tell stories to bring history more to life, this is the conference for you and it promises to be a really good one. After that, we have a little bit of a summer break and then we start again in October. We have been booked to appear at the Devon Family History Society in North Devon. From there, we're going on later in the month to the Museum in the Park in Stroud on the 12th of October. And then we're appearing in Totnes Library on the 10th of November. So um, I expect there'll probably be a few more dates going into the diary between now and then. So do keep an eye on both the Circle of Spears website and my own website, as you can get all the details of all our upcoming shows from both of those. Um, so all of these things have literally made witch into an entity all of its own, which I never for a moment thought would happen. When I wrote it, I thought, hopefully the guys at Circle of Spears will like it. Hopefully it will do a summer season down in Boss Castle and then we'll move on to something else. But I wrote this in April 2016 and it's now July 2017 and there doesn't seem to be any sign of anything letting up. It's just snowballed and become an entity all of its own. And there's another arm, isn't there? Because you said earlier that when you search Google for information, most of the information that comes back is now about you. Yes, and it's now, really annoying. <laughs> yes, it, but it's kind of a, a quite satisfying irony in a way that that happens. I mean, what that essentially means, isn't it, is that you're doing a lot of research into an area that hasn't really been researched before um, which is why now you find yourself online so much but of course the type of research that you're having to do isn't really internet research is it it's a lot older and a lot more obscure and a lot more difficult to come by than that but you've got some opportunities I believe to continue this research and and to do a lot more with it tell us about that well I sent a book proposal to Troy Books in Cornwall asking if they would be interested in a book which expanded on the themes of which and drew in more of the research that I'd already done, which I wasn't able to get into the play, but also expanding um, and drawing in yet more and looking at it in a sort of wider context, because there are so many instances worldwide, even today, where the sorts of things that you saw in the European witch hunts um, are still going on. There are two instances which I've discovered from the research I've done already of similar things which are happening today. Um, one of them is in Papua New Guinea where they still have witch hunts, where the whole community is involved. Um, the article I found about that um, was really quite graphic and very detailed and absolutely horrific to read. But it just goes to show that the things that people in Marjorie's time would have experienced. In some pockets of society, in various places in the world, they're still going through that. They are still having to go through those sorts of experiences. Soweto is another one that I learned about fairly recently. And this one's particularly interesting because in the discussion about Soweto, it kind of describes Marjorie because it talks about um, healers being the embodiment of their neighbours kind of generalised fears about evil spirits being at work in their community. She becomes the focal point not only of the good that she can do when they need her to help them, but she also becomes the obvious focal point when things go badly and they need somebody to blame. So the things that Marjorie went through in early Elizabethan times, things are still happening like that today in various different parts of the world. And this is the power, isn't it? The power of folklore and the power of social history as a subject area is that we continue to be able to look at these stories and use them hopefully for good in some way, as well as to learn and to understand an awful lot about what happened in our past and how that informs our future. This is why folklore really does continue to be a set of living traditions and, and why there is still so much fascination in many ways with what happened in our past. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us about your production. It's really a fascinating area. 
So if people want to learn more about this project and about your research, where should they look? Well, there's several ways that you can find out more about Witch. I have a website which is dedicated entirely to the play, which is www.tracynormanswitch.com. The website has details of the background to the show, um, which goes into more detail than I've been able to hear. Um, there are photographs. There is a list of all the upcoming performances of the show. Um, I apologise to those of you who are overseas that we haven't got overseas as yet, but hopefully at some point in the future we'll be able to. Um, and there is a blog on the website which I update periodically. And because I'm still in the early stages of my research, as that research gathers momentum, there will be more posts going up on that one. So keep an eye on it. Um, I'm also on Twitter. You can follow at WitchPlayCOS. And you can also find more about the show at www.circleofspears.com, where you can also buy the audio version of the show from the online shop. Um, Circle of Spears is slightly unique because when we're not making live theatre, we also create audiobooks. We work specifically with um, independent authors and small publishers, and we don't charge massive upfront fees, so a lot more people can now bring their work into audio because we work on a profit share basis rather than charging massive fees. So do have a look at the catalogue um, on the Circle of Spears website. There's an awful lot of um, variety on there, something for every taste, I think. If you go to the Folklore Podcast website, you'll find links to all of those sites that Tracy's just mentioned, as well as the Facebook page for which where you'll be able to interact with Tracy and find out more about the project. So all of those links are on the Folklore Podcast website on the episode guide for this episode. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us about your play and hopefully for allowing people to get a little bit more insight into some of the trials and tribulations as well as the beliefs and the lives of people from our past. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this, the 25th episode of the Folklore Podcast. We'll be back after our summer break in September with episodes on, amongst other things, mermaids, werewolves with an unusual twist, and a cavalcade of unusual folkloric creatures. Keep an eye on our Facebook page for more news, talk to us on the discussion group, and watch out for bonus content if you're a Patreon supporter. See you in a month. The Folklore Podcast is created and hosted by me, Mark Norman. Find out more about my writing and research at www.facebook.com slash marknormanfolklore. The Folklore Podcast art director is Melissa Martell. Find her work at www.mdmcreate.com. The Folklore Podcast will always be free to listen to, but it is an enormous amount of work to research, create, record and write two of these episodes every month. And so, we have created a simple way in which you can help to support the ongoing life of the Folklore Podcast. Please visit our website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com and click on support. There are various ways that you can help, and they don't all involve giving us money. Even just leaving a simple review on iTunes or other podcast apps helps to grow our audience. So please do visit and take a moment to help us to keep going. Thank you for listening. The Folklore Podcast theme music is written and performed by Gurdy Bird.